Hey everyone, I'm Trent Custers, co-founder and studio director of League of Geeks, and this is the Game Maker's Notebook. Today I had a fantastic conversation with Christopher Chansey, who is the co-founder of Canadian indie studio collective, Indie Asylum, and also the CEO and creative director of Manavoid. We discussed their 2021 RPG, Rainbow Billy and the Curse of the Leviathan. We spoke about how they went about swapping combat for conversation and how Chris and his team tackled difficult issues like mental health and representation within an RPG. We also talk a bit about Chris's perspective on the Montreal games industry and the challenges they face and what he and Indie Asylum are doing to address those. It's an absolutely insightful conversation. Chris is incredibly, incredibly intelligent, has a whole bunch of experience in that region. And the, the journey of Rainbow Billy is one that's quite enthralling. So I really hope that you enjoy the conversation that we had today as much as I did having the chat with Chris. Please enjoy. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Today we have a exciting episode. We have Christopher Chansey, a CEO and creative director of Manavoid. Welcome, Christopher. Thanks for having me. You're you're very, very, very welcome. Now, I think it's best to start off with all of um, these great things. Uh, we're here because of Rainbow Billy and the Curse of the Leviathan, which you released last year in 2021, I believe. Yeah, October. Yeah, great. October 2021. Uh, just a couple of months ago, did a, did a GDC talk. And we... I think it's the best place to start is how did how did this all come about? How did you get into games? How did you find your way into games and um, arrive at Rainbow Billy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, we've we founded uh, Manavoid in uh, 2014, uh, and I started the company straight out of university. So it's uh, it's pretty much I think the best and worst way to start a company uh, <laughs> because I, like after doing it for so many years, I think you need kind of like that you know, that innocence of life to be able to like actually get through the tough moments. Yeah. Uh, the naivety is a superpower as well, right? I think it is. Yeah. Cause you're trying to do so like so many impossible things when, when it's your studio that I think knowing they're impossible would be hard, harder to do with them. Um, <laughs> so it was a really small studio initially. Uh, we were three co-founders and uh, we started on a, on a, like an indie project. Uh, I had graduated with a post-grad uh, in game design. And I had done some cinema stuff in the past, in the past, uh, and I ended up being lead programmer on the project. So you know, a lot of <laughs> a lot of tutorials at the time. None of those things connect in any, no. any way, as well. I love it. But like jack of all trades, and you know, I really love the the indie life. Uh, we had one of our teachers in school who had his indie studio. Like you know, I felt really inspired coming out of university, and I basically like you know, we we wanted to do our own thing. The first game we made was a game called Epic Manager which was a mix of sports management and an RPG. So basically you had like a guild of adventurers and you'd hire with signing bonuses and salaries, these adventurers that you'd eventually bring into your team, send them out to like die on the field of battle, bring back gold <laughs> and then hire better adventurers and so on and so forth. It was like a management game that we created. I love it. 
And we were like so naive that we were like, oh, well, it's just an interface game, you know, point and click, you know, it's, it's going to be so easy mechanically. It's, it's way less hard to do than an action game or whatever. Yeah, and shooting fish in just, a barrel, surely. Yeah, exactly. And you realize, oh, okay, these types of games are only fun when all of the systems are coded and are like are perfectly balanced. Mm, I see. Yes. Uh, <laughs> see, I um, we make strategy games over here at League of Geeks, so you feel my pain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, Epic Manager, like considering the team we were, ended up doing well. And um, you know, one of the things when we found in Manavoid that we really wanted to to take care of was marketing. You know, so. Really early on, we did a Kickstarter for the game. Uh, you know, humble success. Uh, we managed to get just enough funds to to get us like past what we needed to to make the game. Um, but you know, I think here, particularly in Montreal, you have all of these huge studios that are making video games, right? Ubisoft, Square Enix, Warner Brothers. Everyone's here, um, but all of the marketing decisions are still taken in the UK, in Paris, and in, in the United States. And so I feel like, you know, there was there was a lack of talent for marketing in in our province. And so we decided to kind of, you know, start looking at market first and try different marketing tactics. And and so we started like with the Kickstarter and our Kickstarter did well enough that other studios took notice and started hiring us to do their Kickstarter campaigns. <laughs> so so we ended up like right after uh, Epic Manager shipped to like we took on a bunch of different contracts to to like, you know, market games. And so we learned a lot because, you know, we ended up shipping a lot of games quickly yeah. in a short period of time. And that's, I think that's the hardest thing for indies is that you don't ship enough games. It's like Absolutely. every production is like two or three years. So yeah, like learning everything you need to know is really tough. But, uh, and after that, basically my two partners who I was with at the time were like, we love marketing games. And I was like, well, I love making games. <laughs> and so we ended up uh, splitting ways at that point because I really wanted to keep developing and they really wanted to focus on the service part. Um, and so I, I bought back the shares of the studios mm -hmm. and uh, and yeah, uh, we got on a path. I, I, I had a new partner called Pascal Nataf at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, with him, I rebooted Manavoid 2.0. And the first game that we came up with was one of the art directors that you had worked with him. His name is Anthony. Um, he uh, he had this concept for, you know, a black and white boat with a like cartoon art style, like reminiscent yeah. of the early Disney. Mm -hmm. um, Cuphead had just come out and done really, really well. There was no RPG like or adventure game in that style. So we we're like, mm -hmm. okay, well, let's try it out. And we essentially made a, an early prototype, went on Kickstarter, did all right there, and then so on and so forth. It's kind of a crazy story, but yeah. started out in 2D, became 2.5D somewhere down the line because we wanted more exploration opportunities. Yeah. Feature creep uh, like always happens. <laughs> Suck us for punishment, just like the Absolutely. Epic Manager game as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We get, we I never learned. Yeah. <laughs> so we got some funding from the Canada Media Fund uh, and then, uh, you know, won a few awards. And then we interested Skybound Games. Like Rainbow Billy is is very much uh, a, a game made for everyone, but it does have kind of this childish aesthetic to it. Hmm. So we thought it was really funny because Skybound owned the IP for The Walking Dead. Yeah. <laughs> so so my publisher was the publisher for The Walking Dead, who was yeah. kind of like financing my Uber like rainbow cartoon game. It was kind of awesome. <laughs> I um I did cock an eyebrow when I saw that, and I'm like, is this something? Is this like a Frog Fractions thing that I'm going to get into <laughs> it, and it's going to actually be like some hectic mature video game um, beyond this this kiddie aesthetic? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the game 
like does delve into a lot of mature themes yes. i think there's a lot of like so there's some heavy dialogue and mm -hmm. you know i think we do like we don't shy away from a lot of subjects yep. um but yeah i mean and, and then the game shipped in october and now we have three new ips in the works uh, the game is like the the team is scaled we're about 30 now uh and uh you know chugging along making indie games and, and living yeah. the dream. it is the dream isn't it I actually like just before we continue I have yeah. to say like I remember when we did our Kickstarter for uh, Epic Manager at the time in 2014 I think mm -hmm. Armello had just come out of Kickstarter and I remember right. like it had done well and I remember looking at it and like trying to analyze why it had done well and, like, <laughs> I, so like indirectly I feel like I learned from you early on <laughs> in 2014. Oh, thank, you. thank you so much yeah it's um I guess it's it's why you are where you are today, really. Let's let's be honest. Yeah, absolutely. It all comes down to you. <laughs> no, thank you. I, I find it so fascinating, um, the and especially around that time. I feel like uh, you and I and our Kickstarters, uh, we we came around right at the end of that bubble, just as it had kind of bursted. You know, there weren't eight million dollar Android gaming platforms or you know, um, huge huge projects or anything like that. But we were still able to get something out of it. The community was still there, and it's still it's amazing that it's still kicking along in the background. Like Kickstarter doesn't get the media attention that it once did. We're not seeing the articles written, but there it still is like a, a pretty viable funding platform when you look at the numbers for especially indies of our size as well. I think it's also like a trust thing, you know, like mm -hmm. initially, I think it was kind of like a, the far west on Kickstarter. Like I remember mm -hmm. like people would never shipped a game before, like raising 500K, yeah. a million dollars. Like it, it, for their in MMO. 20, in 12, yeah, in 2012. But then I think around like, like you say, 2014, 2015, enough of them had like not shipped that I think, you know, the, the glow of Kickstarter was suddenly kind of fading. And now today you'll see success stories with like proven teams, people that have a community and like mm -hmm. kind of a track record um, because then you have the trust of the backers that are like you've delivered before. Rainbow Billy was our second Kickstarter with Manavoid. But yep. I mean, like I said, we've shipped like six Kickstarters now, like working with other companies. So like we know, like we have a community of people who know that we do Kickstarter well. And I think like they're always, they always trust that they, that will deliver the product when the, like however early we might be on Kickstarter, they know that they're going to get like a high quality project at the end. And I think that's that's the clincher now to to be able to get the funds you need. Yeah, absolutely. We really saw that, I think, around 2014, 2015, uh, when people started to see the the results of some of those those projects not turning out, we saw it mature very quickly. And we've seen a similar thing with Early Access. I remember when we went to Early Access, we did an actual, you know, for our Mallow, we did an actual, um, like a, kickstarter style video at the start to be like you know two camera like instead of a gameplay trailer or something like that two camera hey we're coming early access um you don't have to worry we're going to finish the game which sounds like a crazy thing to say these days but there was that real skepticism like games are just being left you know sort of on the beach in parts at the yeah. start i remember you know talking to valve about it and um, the struggles they had sort of getting that getting that happening getting it off the ground but it doesn't take long for that for it to mature and both on the developer side and the community side but I think as an industry, indies, like, I think we're only 10 years in, to be honest. Like, yeah. when you think about it, like, the the barrier to entry to become an indie developer was pretty much when Steam came along. Yeah. So, you know, like, not having to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to be on the top shelf at Walmart or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah. that, that kind of helped us a lot. And also, like, the, the engines became free. Yeah. But when, it, like, everyone who spun off a studio 
were not like didn't come from like an administrative or like a finance background. It was like really passionate game designers, artists, programmers who have no fucking clue how to run a business, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of crazy. And I mean, it's it's normal that you overscope. It's normal that you don't know how to manage funds like you've never done it before. So yeah. I think those early days of Kickstarter are kind of like, well, it was it was like the kind of like the the blockbuster days where you would trust an auteur to be able to make a video game. And it like was all about the art of it. And I thought that was really, really awesome. But at the same time, like there was a lot of people who ended up just, you know, fizzling out because mm -hmm. mismanaged funds, not understanding like how to like write HR practices. And these issues are still prevalent today. And I think they're even worse in some ways today because they've reached, you know, like bigger studios, like a lot of people who are promoted within don't come from necessarily administrative background end up yes. in leadership roles and sometimes do like some a lot of damage to our industry and i think you know that's part of it we need like to collectively get better as you know companies <laughs> and like the yeah. like the managerial aptitudes need to get better i think in our industry in general <laughs> yeah absolutely that was definitely a, a parallel that i was gonna gonna draw myself is um, folks, you know, being um, promoted up through to managerial positions um, that lead to some of the, especially in some of the industry studios, some of the leadership issues that we that we see today. Um, but on this stuff, I'm actually going to pivot away. We'll take a divergence and we'll come back to Rainbow Billy because you're also co-founder of Indie Asylum, which I believe is set up to address these kinds of things specifically, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we noticed um, Pretty much when I rebooted Manifoid uh, with my, with Pascal, like one of the things we noticed was there was no funds for early startups uh, here in Montreal and mm -hmm. in Quebec. And I think, you know, there's there's 15,000 employees uh, in Quebec now, like, you know, all of the That's big amazing. studios are here. And so you have like this raw talent and you have a lot of people who want to make video games, like indie video games who want to start studios. They just don't know how to. So we developed a boot camp for entrepreneurs uh, associated with a, a university here in the province. And basically, entrepreneurs could follow our boot camp. And after that, like they come out of it with a financing plan, a pitch deck. You know, we presented them to some publishers. Um, you know, they, they had like everything they needed, uh, you know, a solid marketing plan. They had everything they, they needed to actually press start on a company. They knew how to do payroll. They knew how to do HR. Mm -hmm. They had like contract templates, you know, that. We gave them everything that we could. Um, and then those that like actually showed a lot of promise and hustle, well, we ended up investing in. And so that's kind of how the like the Indie Asylum grew. It's not yeah. like we had this intention of doing it. It was just like we saw like a struggling team that needed a hundred K to to like just kick off their 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 company. And we were like, well, listen, you know, we we believe in you guys, so here's a hundred K and let's do it, right? And mm -hmm. at the time we were like, well, you know. We'll, we'll invest this hundred thousand and, you know, the worst that can happen is they fail, but then they've learned a lot and, you know, we can maybe still work with them through in our companies. And, you know, it's, it wasn't like that, that much of a risk for us because, you know, uh, we, we thought that the workforce was like really talented. So we just wanted to, you know, ha have the chance to keep working with them, but they ended up taking off. And then we did it with another company called chasing rats games. Um, and uh, chasing rats took off as well. They, they're, they just signed a project with Kalu Knights. Um, ah, great. We invested in a company called Low Birth, who do like uh, walking simulators that you know represent more diversity uh, in the characters. Um, we invested in a new company called Lucid Dreams, 
that makes specifically Metroidvania Souls-like 2D hand-painted games that are really gorgeous. And, you know, slowly, one, one, one per year, basically, is what we're going for. We'll invest in these studios. We'll give them all of the mentorship they need, um, human resources, funding, and uh, basically uh, access to, like, eight years worth of going to GDC and <laughs> shaking hands and knowing people and, you know, financing yeah. projects gets easier as the years go along, just because, you know, there's trust that that gets built throughout years of going to GDC and meeting people and developing projects. So, you know, it's easier today, I think, to, to accelerate a company that we invest in and, hmm. and we're knock on wood. We've had no, like no company like fall through the cracks or, or shut down so far. Everyone's thriving. So it's a, it's kind of like a, it's awesome, but at the same time, it's an issue because we've grew a lot during the pandemic, and I'm not sure everyone fits in our building anymore. So yeah, we need to put up their their adoption papers. Yeah, it's like so. It's all good because right now it's like the remote work thing. But I mean, we're gonna have to. Future Chris is gonna have a lot of work on his table. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have? Um, is this something that's happening every year that you're opening up to different folks? And and this boot camp is it something that happens regularly, or is it just as a as a as a need? Are you do you like? It sounds like you have maybe a full stables at the moment i mean for us like we want to try and keep it at one a year um mm. just because like we're really hands-on initially and and you know when you we invest in a project it's usually because we know how to like we know, we see a golden path for it either we know who the right partner is to publish it or either we know like how we would fund it or how we would market it or how we would sell it like we have a clear idea of how to do it and we can yep. bring them to, to to reach that like golden path um so if there was like no opportunities we're not going to take one just to take one yeah it's not like you know it, it does take a lot of our time but you know one a year i think is is doable we would love to be able to scale the operations we're kind of trying to build a, like a an actual business plan of how like we'd be able to do that currently and we know there's a lot of needs that we're not addressing so you know like let's say i don't invest in a studio but i could probably still do a lot of good with other indies in quebec like just through helping them with marketing or stuff like that so we have a marketing team in house that we're trying to build that might be able to take on some external work um because there's not a lot of companies that do it here so where we're trying to kind of develop the internal services where we invest in studios and we give them the full package but maybe develop like a form of external service that you know, you could kind of come in, knock on the door of the indie asylum when you want to launch a game and you don't know what you're doing and we can give you the best practices at the minimum and then maybe offer you some services and, and help you with your launch uh, in some way or some form. So we're, we're working on it. Uh, it, it definitely yeah. is a, a prevalent need because uh, there's 350 studios now in Quebec. There's, there's, a lot, like, there's a lot of them. And uh, out of those 350, I would say 310 of them are under 20 people. Wow. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of young startups, uh, that are making some awesome, innovative, creative projects, uh, but maybe need like, uh, to have that kick in the pants to understand what marketing is and what running a business is. Right. Yeah. To understand how serious it is and what it involves. Yeah. That's incredible. I think just thinking about, you know, the, the Quebec industry, there's 15,000 people. I mean, the Australian scene over here, and especially I think about 50% of developers are in Melbourne. So in the state of Victoria, but still, I mean, the Australian industry is only 1500 people. And I mean, we do okay. We punch above our weight, but that's <laughs> it's 10 <laughs> times less than what you got over there in one province. It's just absolutely incredible. Yeah. I think it's the, it's the only, like it, we have the most developers per capita in Montreal mm. in the entire world. 
And, uh, and it's all thanks to like a, a tax credit that we had since yeah. 90, 1997. Yeah. It was like one of the first initiatives of the sort at the time. And that's what brought all the big, uh, the big players to Montreal. And then from the big players spun off all of the smaller players. And the ecosystem is really like, it's thriving today also because there's a lot of collaboration like in between the big studios and the small studios, we found, we founded a, a cooperative called the guild of Montreal development, like the Quebec video game development guild. And, um, my biggest member is Ubisoft and my smallest member is like a two person <laughs> studio in their garage. But so they you're both have one vote. responsible for this as well. We have you to blame I, I, the guild I, I'm, I'm on the board uh, of that <laughs> guild, but where there are 15 of us on the board. So okay, it's, great, yeah. it's a, it's a team effort. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I am the president though. So, you know, I'm, I'm I'm doing my best to to make sure that you know the big studios have their needs addressed and the yeah. small studios as well and and those needs are are like radically different but it's interesting because around the table for the first time so we so we we've merged with the bigger studios and the smaller studios in in 2020 and for the first time I think anywhere on the world you have Ubisoft who can actually understand what this like a small studios issues are and vice yeah. versa and those yeah. make for some really awesome conversations. Mm. And for me, I'm trying to position Montreal as to become a leading voice in, you know, in the industry. That would be like, I, I think the dream eventually, like we've, we've shown that we were amongst the best in the world at making games. And I think, you know, we have such a critical mass of studios here. It'd be awesome if like, instead of just following trends or, you know, trying to emulate what others are doing, that we'd be trendsetters and that, you know, when there are issues that we're able to, you know, publicly say, listen, this is like Yale's position on these things. We've talked yeah. it through. This is like what we believe. And, you know, we're, we're going to get there. It's a, it's also a work in progress. I feel like I'm, I'm doing like 60% well in like 17 different things. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But... <laughs> yeah. Every day I run an yeah. indie game studio. <laughs> Absolutely. Every day I, I empathize with you greatly. Well, the league sounds Oh, the guild. Sorry, sounds yeah. sounds sounds sounds. Well, I'm the league. We're the league of geeks. You're the guild. <laughs> um, it sounds incredible. Is and to have that that spectrum of developers as well. I know you know we have the IGEA out here as a, our industry lobbying lobbying body, and because of um, the they represent local publishers as well and their interests lobbying against uh, government. But when I say local publishers, I mean like you know the the Australian arm of Ubisoft or you know Nintendo or anything. It's just amazing having like the general manager of Nintendo Australia on the same board as, you know, my business partner, Ty, who's, you know, who, and they're both advocating for issues that affect all of us. And a lot of the time for a Nintendo here in Australia, they might be talking about things that affect them in retail or that segment of the industry. And it's, it's really great to have those perspectives in, the, in those rooms. I think, you know, I've always in my life tried to be the stupidest person around the table and surround myself with really smart people who know a lot of things and yeah. just being a fly on the wall, oftentimes by osmosis, you can kind of get a little bit smarter. Uh, <laughs> so I think, I think that's definitely the way to go. Sharing is, is the best. And like I was saying earlier, I think, you know, we ship like uh, as an indie studio, you ship a game every two or three years yeah. and, and that's not enough to learn what you need to learn to be able to, you know, do production well and like sell games well shit. Yeah. like so i think by sharing the best practices uh, that you have with other studios and vice versa it allows us to all ramp up collectively and, and kind of do better and this is really unique to our industry like like I, if i was selling shoes against like another person another company selling shoes we're fighting for the same local clientele mm -hmm. it's harder to collaborate 
than it is like in video games where like 99% of our, like the, the funds that we generate are all exportation. Right. So yeah, it's like, we're not fighting locally for, for like, you know, for clients. And even in this, like, there's so many different genres, demographics, age groups, like there's so many different themes and, you know, different types yeah. of games on different platforms that you never like end up making the same thing as someone else. <laughs> and so no one's really competing. So why not just share all the information and, and thrive together, right? Yeah, I remember uh, when um, Nath Gary had first spun up uh, Annapurna Interactive. He said, "Hey, uh, come to GDC and let's have a chat about what we're doing. We've got this new thing going on." And um, we went and we met, and he had some of the crew from the film side there with him, sort of you know shadowing him around. And um, I'm not sure if they went on to join. Uh, the interactive side or if they were just there sort of getting a vibe for things but I remember when we sat down for the meeting it was like the second day their second day of GDC or something I said oh how are you finding it and they were just blown away that they had walked into rooms with like a thousand developers or 500 developers and someone is up there from Ubisoft being like here's exactly how we did the AI pathfinding in this game or something. Or <laughs> here's all of our trade secrets or just on the floor. So I'm going to be like, oh yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give you those marketing numbers or whatever. They were like, this is wild. I don't know who you <laughs> people are or what, what's going on here. But it's just, it always, always amazes me when we have people from out of industry, because just like you're saying um, is much needed. We hire folks from, you know, outside of industry to come into positions that they're, um, you know, that they're more experienced for. So for example, our talent specialist, she's absolutely, fantastic and you know but she was never in games before this and it's just amazing to see people's reaction to our industry and how how um collegial it is i guess it's really great. yeah and, and and that might be like the like kind of the upside of having no app like managerial aptitudes it's that <laughs> you just you share everything with everyone all the time yeah, yeah that's but it. agreed like there, there's nothing to lose by sharing i think collaboration is the, is the key and i think you know right now when you're looking at the industry you're seeing all this consolidation happen where like you know a lot of bigger studios are uh, like buying the medium-sized studios and medium-sized studios are buying small studios and so on and so forth and i think part of that is just like it's all it's oftentimes people that have been already collaborating behind the scenes and you never knew that, you know, the small studio had done like all of the AI for this yeah. game. And, yeah, you know, the collaboration has, has been there for a while. And I think more and more, you know, the industry keeps growing, but I think we're not churning out developers at the same pace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think, mm -hmm. I think you'll be seeing a lot more co-production in the future. And I think that's, that's a positive thing in some, in some form. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Well, hey, Rainbow Billy for and the cur and the curse of the Leviathan. Rainbow Billy and the curse of the Leviathan. Uh, for all of our listeners who may not have heard of <laughs> this absolutely wonderful, um, I would say like hallucinogenic, almost acid trip of a game, but it's not that at all because it's so it's so for kids. Um, yeah, in a way, yeah. Uh, why don't you Why don't you give us the elevator pitch? Absolutely. So, Rainbow Billy is a two point five D adventure RPG. Uh, where you play this child named Billy who ends up in a world that's devoid of color. The Leviathan has taken it all away. And basically it is up to them to, with friends to go on uh, this adventure on all of these islands and uh, discover how to recolor them uh, piece by piece. So, you know, like the design of the game initially was very much adventure RPG and black and white aesthetic reminiscent of early Disney. And like my art director had like was very adamant that he wanted to have this black and white part of it. And I was like, I don't think a black and white game is going to sell. I don't think a black and white game for like 20 hours is a thing. Right. So I, yeah. I think people are going to get annoyed with it. So I said, 
let's compromise and say, let's start in black and white and then bring it all the way back into color. That would kind of like became the, the protagonist's objective, right? Um, so the game started off like that. And then we had like all of these RPG mechanics that we brought in that we tied up around color. So the game is all about empathy, basically. There's a lot of characters and all of the characters you, you meet up have also been robbed of their colors. And by dialogue, uh, we made a non-violent game, uh, a non-violent RPG, which is, which is a challenge to do. Uh, by dialogue, basically, you understand which colors people need. And uh, on your team, every time you collect a, a friend or a creature, uh, they have a specific color. And then by using them to recolor the, the people on the other side, you're able to bring them back onto your team and then to move forward uh, with, uh, with them on, uh, on your roster. So that was kind of the idea initially. And, uh, and yeah, throughout all of that, you know, a lot of the narrative kind of built itself around, uh, like gender identity and, you know, just celebrating the uniqueness of different like types of people. Um, and so we, we leaned into it because the community was resonating with that. And, you know, we wanted to tell stories that have never really been told before. So, you know, Billy is a non-binary character and, you know, writing for that is, was definitely like interesting and a challenge. And we, we talked with a bunch of different consultants to, to be able to represent that the right way with the right, you know, make sure that we were representing that community as well as possible. And uh, yeah, we're really happy with the reception so far. Like, uh, you know, the Metacritic is over 80, which is always a good thing. Uh, we're 95% positive on Steam. We made streamers cry. And hmm. I mean, that's, that's a, definitely a dev achievement for me. And, uh, you know, we're really happy with where, where the game is at. And, and as an indie studio, also, I got to say, you know, thanks to Skybound and, the, and their help with the project, I think this is the first game that I've ever made that is the full vision of what was intended initially. You know, like, I'm sure you know, sometimes <laughs> you need to cut corners yeah. uh, here and I'm there sure. to, to be able to, to get through. Um, but yeah, this one, we, we had the time and we took the time and we delivered something that we're really proud of. I'm sure that's the thing that's making all of our game developer pals listening jealous more than anything else, right? Realizing your your full vision, uh, that's that's fantastic. And so, when did Skybound come aboard? Um, so we had we had received some funding from the Canada Media Fund, so we had a solid prototype, and uh, I was shopping it at our local event here in Montreal. Uh, so, like Guild has an event that runs every every year called the Mega Migs. Mm -hmm. It's a B2B2C event. So um, there's a B2B, which is the MIGS, the Montreal International Game Summit that's been going on for almost 20 years now. And then the Mega is like, is on, it's been around for five years is the Montreal Expo Gaming Arcade. And both, both of them are basically at the same time. Uh, and so all of the publishers around the world come to Montreal uh, to speak with devs uh, and to see what's coming up. And I met with Ian Howe, which is the the, the co-CEO of uh, Skybound Games. And uh, he saw the project and I think immediately fell in love with what we were trying to do, the messages we were trying to put, like push forward. Um, you know, we had a solid build and he played it. We had a Kickstarter that had, a, had gone through. We had one of the Ubisoft Indie Series, which is a contest that uh, Ubisoft has here in Montreal. And I think, you know, the game had just enough accolades and a, a community behind it where I think it, ha it had de-risked a lot of like the, the elements that you might see with like mm -hmm. making an adventure RPG, you are kind of you're fighting against a, a lot of, uh, of of big hitters. <laughs> yeah, there's some heavyweights <laughs> in the ring. Yeah, but uh, but I think yeah, the, the game had the potential, and I think they saw it and and were really like enthusiastic about joining. And honestly, their their help was was really really uh, 
appreciated, you know, Skybound through like all of the Walking Dead stuff, you know, they're really, really good at narrative. Um, and so, you know, creatively, they were able to kind of bring us into certain paths and they had certain consultants that we worked with, you know, just for, you know, writing inclusively, writing for specific, uh, you know, writing uh, with uh, no trigger words, for example, because, you know, we talk about mental health in the game. We talk about, yeah. you know, all the creatures you're encountering, all of kind of have these insecurities and things that yeah. you need to work through. And so we learned a lot, you know, through them about how to to write narrative games that are like, keep characters interesting, different, and, uh, and, you know, full of promise, but at the same time, be mindful of what you're writing, uh, make sure you're not using wrong terminology and all of these mm -hmm. things. So, so they were a huge support for that. Plus yeah. the marketing and all of the, the, the production support and all of that stuff. But the narrative stuff is, is really the clincher that they gave us. Which is something that I'm quite interested in as well with Rainbow Billy because of the quote unquote combat or battle system, right? Where you've switched out combat for conversation. So the context for everyone listening is you will come across uh, some creature that has had their, their color removed and they're quite angry or upset about something. And you go into a Pokemon or Final Fantasy style turn-based battle and you have your uh, little creatures, your friends that you've you've restored their color to along the way and then like a like a deck builder or like a you know um, you have a, a hand of cards or tokens as they are in Rainbow Billy it'll deal out some some of your friends and the battle always starts with this creature who's had the color um, ripped out of them and they're all angry actually expressing why they are angry and you have an option to talk or listen sometimes there's some tips and when you listen they'll go through a few lines um, of what what the things are that are affecting them or what might be causing them to be in some cases extremely mad <laughs> extremely <laughs> angry uh and then you go about um you say talk so that's your fight button so to speak or your attack button and then you have a few options there and you have to choose what Billy will and sometimes some of his friends. Is it Roderick? Roderick is, is Rodrigo. Rodrigo, was, that's right. Yeah. It was a fishing rod. So we wanted to have the rod in there. Yes. Of course. Yeah. Anthropomorphized fishing rod. Uh, and so, uh, and then it's you that choose. kind of game. Yeah. Yeah. It totally is. Yeah. It's like, that'll give you an idea of what's going on here. Uh, and then you choose what you want to say to these creatures and depending on your response, and some, some of them are like, suck it up or whatever. <laughs> uh, but as you might assume, that's not the best thing to say to someone who's having a tough time. And so you have to actually navigate these battles via conversation. And as you, if you say something that is um, really going to support the character who's having a tough time, this creature that you're fighting, battling, quote unquote, um, it will reveal colors for you that they need and then you can actually use your friends to then um actually give them those colors so to speak it's really really is a beautiful metaphor and there are so and then there's like there's mini games for the fighting like paddles and all of this sort of stuff but it really is a, a beautiful metaphor and so my question is how did that whole process come about did you know that from the start and um, what was involved in coming up with even things like how'd you get to the mini game thing because i know accessibility is a big part for you and then also making it's such a like you say with skybound support it's such a a fragile area and um what how do i say like 
sort of approach to these things because a lot of these folks that you're you're referencing in the game, a lot of your players will have had similar issues or struggle with similar things themselves. And so did you have psychologists on board? Tell us the whole thing about how this conversa- uh, combat Absolutely. by conversation came up. So, I mean, like initially, this was not the plan. Um, we were making an <laughs> RPG. Um, but, uh, but I read a, an article by James Batchelor from gamesindustry.biz mm. in, in 2019 that said, um, that only 17% of games that were shown at E3 that year were nonviolent. I, I remember that article. And uh, I, that had struck me as low. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, also, you know, I, I teach in, in different schools. You know, I, I, I do a lot of things community-wise here. And, and uh, I, I, part of me just wanted to be the change I'd like to see in the industry sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think also video games as a medium is very very new there's still a lot of things that we haven't like we've, we're still scratching the surface of the yes. potential of what games can be and i think really quickly we pigeonholed into the like white action hero shooting things and like exploding cars and stuff and so that's cool and i love those games too um but there's enough of them <laughs> i wanted to tell another type of story yeah, let's try something else maybe yeah, and then, you know, I think also just a nonviolent RPG, there's not a lot of examples out there. You know, I think one of the examples that inspired us was definitely Undertale and what they had done, um, you know, with the pacifist runs and all of that stuff. Uh, so, like, we were like, okay, well, I, let, let's give ourselves this, like, design constraint. Let's say we wanted to make the game nonviolent. How would we go about it? And uh, and honestly, the game, like, had already at that point, narratively, we were kind of leaning into the more left, left <laughs> stuff, like, where, you know, very... <laughs> Like it, the game is very much a reflection of our studio in terms of values. Yes. And so for us, it was kind of, okay, well, no brainer. It, of course it shouldn't be violent. Like it would kind of anyways go against the narrative that we're building with the game. So that, that then became like the, the constraint that we were going to work around. Um, initially, the game had a match three system where you had to match certain colors that would be your colored mana that would kind of recolor the creature. We tried a lot of different really mm-hmm. fucked up things that didn't end up working. Uh, the the like the combat system or like what the confrontation system is what we call it um, took a lot of time to to develop right. But you know once uh, once we were certain that we were going to recolor the creatures. We knew that at that point there was going to be some form of dialogue because we wanted each creature to feel unique in the game. Mm-hmm. And then it was just a question of tying dialogue to what they needed to, to, to kind of receive to be able to be recolored. And so that's, that's where that, that idea started, like, uh, started coming about. And then the mini games is, you know, I've, I'm a big fan of RPGs. Like, uh, I've always been a big fan of RPGs. I have Final Fantasy VII tattooed on my arm. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm completely sold to RPGs. Um, but one thing that I don't like about them is uh, when you're in a turn-based RPG and then you, like, click on a spell or an attack and then you have to wait 30 seconds for an animation to run. And then, you know, after that, it's your turn again. And there's, like, a lot of, like, stop and go. And so we wanted to have QTEs involved just to keep the the dynamics, uh, keep it, keep them going. Because there is like a lot of the game is also platforming and exploration and, uh, you know, like maneuvering around like this 3D world. And so we didn't want it to feel completely disconnected uh, when you got into the combat, like where you're kind of like in a passive posture. Whereas when you're in the game, you're very like much in a, like an action action paced type of uh, experience and that's why we wanted to make the qtes and then 
it was all about, okay, well, this creature is different than, so like we had types of creatures that were different and there's like a huge Bible of lore behind all of the creatures that exists behind the scenes. And so you'll notice that all of the creatures that are shy have this type of mini game. And there's like a lot of different things that are happening in the background there. Um, and then, yeah, you know, keeping accessibility. One of the things that we wanted, like we knew about the game was that we wanted it to be for all ages. So obviously, you know, people who have uh, uh, like, for me, you and me, for example, who've been gaming for a long time, like our references are harder and maybe different than a younger generation that might be coming up. Yep. Um, and so we had scalable difficulty uh, that we wanted to introduce to the game. Uh, and then also making sure that, you know, the game, their mini games were always kind of pressing one button at a time or, you know, dealing with one thing. Mm-hmm. It does get challenging as the game goes along. Uh, you know, uh, I still miss <laughs> parts of mini games. <laughs> it, it can be tough, uh, but but yeah, we wanted it to feel fair, um, and I think we did that. And, and the benchmark was my wife, who's not a gamer at all, uh, <laughs> who basically was managed to to get through the game. Uh, you know, so she would try something, and as long as she was having fun, I knew we were on the right path. Yeah, great. Great. And so and I ended up talking with James Bachelor like years later. He interviewed me for the oh, for this fantastic. and he was like, Oh dude, that's awesome that my article kind of like <laughs> Yeah, I think I think <laughs> and this is a message to all you midi- video game media out there. You know, you don't realize the power you have, you know, like we we listen, we're there, yeah, we read yeah. everything you guys do. We certainly do. <laughs> and it's how, are you starting all your interviews with how the interviewer is an inspiration to you? Or <laughs> is this, awesome it sounds like a tactic of yours, actually. <laughs> no, no. no I, I, I mean, I think you can find probably a bunch of interviews online where I mentioned James's name, so that this one is a fair one. <laughs> <laughs> and you you I mean, can back it up. Yeah, and he releases that E3 thing every year. It's yeah. another article that goes up. This year was 19%. We're 2% up, folks. <laughs> like, I don't yeah, know. They, do, they do one for um, uh, gender representation in games as well. I remember seeing, seeing that one. Um, so writing this dialogue and creating these characters, you mentioned Skybound provided support in, uh, with the writing and everything, but you're tackling very serious topics here, um, yeah. which you know um, some would say they're not for a random game developer to just tackle without any support or the proper advice and expert consultancy. So how did you go about that? Yeah. So we did hire a bunch of consultants, you know, it started with like Billy being a non-binary child. We were like, okay, well, how does that manifest in children? We have no clue. Like I'm, I'm like a, I'm a, like a white dude from the suburbs. I have no, <laughs> no fucking idea. So, but, but at the same time, I think, you know, one of the things that like we don't like seeing either is, oh, well, I'm not a homosexual, so I'm not going to put homosexuals in my game because I don't mm-hmm. want, you know, to to misrepresent the community. It's like, no, you can just talk to the community and like have a maybe a consultant tell you yeah. and not like, you know, sublimate a whole like community of people from your game just yeah, because that's you're afraid it. of tackling a subject, right? So yeah. that's, I think, what's one of the things that we really wanted to do was prove that you can talk about like these things that no one wants to talk about, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it, it's a bold stance, I think in some way. And I understand why a lot of people wouldn't want to touch certain subjects, but right. at the same time, it's important to do so. So, you know, we surrounded ourselves with consultants and you'd be surprised at how like happy they are to help, uh, you know, to, to kind of, you know, just add that bit of diversity and representation in games. Yep. Um, well, I so- think as well, when you, when you tackle that, even if you aren't, that identity that you're including in your game when you do step out and you do tackle that and let's say 
especially if it's an identity that is not well represented in the creators in whatever medium. So let's say in game development, if that identity, if there aren't a whole bunch of creators around to actually put themselves into these games, when someone who is not that person actually takes the right steps to do it correctly and then puts that that um, identity into their game, and then it's actually represented for people who are coming up playing games to see and they see themselves in this medium and they see that they belong, then hopefully the impact is that they know that there's a place for them and they can embark upon the path. And so that there are these people to actually, there are people of all different genders, identities, religions, backgrounds and everything to be able to express themselves and further that representation. So I totally understand. Absolutely. I think it's important, you know, and I think it's hard to understand like the scale of how it can be important. Mm -hmm. And again, like uh, I'm a white dude from the suburbs who's married to a woman. So, I mean, you know, like there, I, I understand, I know that I don't know, you know, and I think yeah. that's kind yes. of just, if, if you start from that stance and you surround yourself with the right people, I think you're able to, to tell some really awesome stories. Yeah. I've Check learned a lot, you know, yeah, I, I've learned a lot through, you know, this experience of making this game. And I think it's made me a better developer in person. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad to, that we've gone through this experience and, and that, you know, hopefully there'll be more, uh, Rainbow, Rainbow Billy stories in the future where we might explore in the teen years what that could look like. Oh, uh, fantastic. Um, you heard it but, here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, the other thing also I, I, that I think is important to say is we weren't trying to also to be preachy about it. You know, like it's not mm. like you can tell our values uh, as a studio, I, I believe. And I think anyone from those communities will, I think, feel in some way represented through the dialogues and through the stories that are in the game. But if that's not your bag, you'll have fun playing the game regardless, and you can yeah. finish it and get something out of it. I mean, the the the, the layered story, you know, you, you don't really understand what's going on throughout the entire game until you look at the credits. And in the credits, we rolled like a bunch of photographs of different moments in the games and what they actually represented. <laughs> and I think then that's where everyone kind of starts crying but I think, <laughs> so i think you know if, if you've made it to that part you probably enjoy the game and and you know might not it might have gone like 20 feet over your head like it, it might not be something that you you realize or not might not be something that you're sensitive to um but then maybe still just the fact that in a video game instead of like attacking and defending and you know trying to hurt someone just the fact that you were trying to talk and say the right thing and that you're encouraged to say the right thing through the game's mechanics well, if there's just a little ounce of empathy that you have more at the end of the game, then I feel like that would be like the greatest thing that ever happened. <laughs> the greatest thing I would ever have done as a developer. And I think that's that's where the team, uh, I think, really takes all of their their pride from is, is just seeing people react well to the game. And, and just, you know, a lot of the communities that we ended up talking about kind of rallied around the project as well. And that's super heartwarming because... There, there was still always that risk, right? That, you know, we hit them, we didn't hit the mark or, or that, you know, we didn't say the right thing. Um, but just, you know, having that support in the end of the day is also something that we're, we're super proud of. Yeah, it's such a such a powerful medium and, you know, the interactive nature of, of what we do. I mean, video games aren't out here making people violent, but there's absolutely a chance that they can make us more empathetic, that they can. I was actually just playing Rainbow Billy and sitting there and thinking about parents with their, you know, like their eight-year-old kid or something sitting there playing it together. Have you had much... I am well. It's a silly question because I imagine you've had a bunch. But tell us some of the anecdotes from families or yours. Do you have kids, Chris, or your team? Or 
Um, like our, we do have people on our team who have kids yeah. um, and, and that that really love the game. I, I think, you know, the colorful characters was definitely something that, that kids rallied around a lot. I, I know uh, there, uh, a buddy of mine has uh, has a kid and, and was saying, like, you know, as a father, I feel like this stimulates some, some really interesting conversations uh, that, you know, you might not have, uh, you know, generally. Yeah. So I think I think that was really cool to hear. Um, there was one person that told me that, you know, his daughter was extremely shy and one of the characters in the game was extremely shy mm -hmm. and then she said oh like i'm exactly like this character and then you could see her kind of light up and, and then mm -hmm. open up about like the father said like why are you shy and i kind of gave them that opportunity to dialogue about like maybe some issues that she was going through or so i think wow. that's really awesome that's also. special yeah but i mean again we're not we're, we weren't trying to be preachy about it we just kind of wanted to create like these really diverse characters and at the end of the day, we're all insecure. We've all gone through some shit. I think, mm -hmm. like through the sixty creatures that are in the in the game that you can talk to, everyone kind of is going to rally around a few that are like, oh, "Yeah, that that I've I've been through that before. Like, it's not easy." <laughs> it's like that. I'm in this photo and I don't like it. Meme. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And, and then and then you feel represented in a game, and, and it might it might hit you a different way after that. Have you thought of any applications or have you been approached in any way for this as a, a learning or a dialogue tool in particular settings? Or, you know, I know that uh, there are schools have game programs and things like that. There's there's a school that that asked for for keys because they wanted, you know, the kids to have access to just more communication tools. Uh, yeah. And they thought that the game might help. So I think we sent them a bunch of keys, <laughs> but didn't cool. really hear back what that gave. I know that there's like some university, like masters and doctorates that are looking at gender representation and that kind of stuff. Oh, like, so we, we get that, those emails coming in to people just asking us why, you know, we made certain design choices or like how, or, you know, the, those types of questions. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're happy to advance the science of game studies as, <laughs> as it goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, just along the way. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, for us, you know, we, we really rallied around the whole hope punk thing and, and to be completely honest, during the pandemic, it was tough times, like I think for everyone and working on a really like really wholesome game. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a super positive experience. So I think, you know, that, that kind of cheered us up a little bit, you know, working on something that wasn't too doom and gloom and just going into work and trying to write these dialogues of these quirky characters doing some nice things for each other. Was, yeah, you like look out your window past your monitor and the actual world is color is sucked <laughs> yes. out of outside. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so um tell me a little bit about the accessibility features and functionality because one of the first things that i noticed you have the dyslexia friendly fonts you um you have the difficulty modes things like that yeah well i mean that's another thing you know trying to be as accessible as possible so that a maximum of people could play the game um, yeah. again trying to be that change that we want to see in the industry mm -hmm. you know uh it was funny because we were making a game all about color and we had like our two main programmers were like different types of colorblind so <laughs> <laughs> so really early on they're like is that green i'm not sure i'm like okay well that's an issue we're gonna have yeah. to use shapes <laughs> so yeah. you know each color is also a shape and so like all of these reflections are you know some some of the stuff like emerged from the team you know people are like oh man it'd be really awesome if you know we could have this dyslexia friendly font like mm -hmm. so we, we created a system for that like uh, at some point we really like we really explored um, people being able to choose their pronouns at the beginning of the game and then yep. trying to like change all of the dialogues going forward. And we realized that that is a fucking 
undertaking <laughs> to do. Yeah. And that was being extremely difficult to do. And we didn't have like with the indie budget we had, we couldn't do it, but still mm-hmm. it's something that I'd love to explore in the future. Yep. So we're we're always willing to look at a, an accessibility feature and see how we can implement it. Um, and and I, a lot of other games are like, can, can serve as examples for this. Like yep. uh, the new last of us for like had a, like did a really good job, I think for a triple A studio to actually yeah. go that deep into accessibility yeah. was saw some of that stuff and were like, yeah, that this is the way to go. And, uh, and again, you know, we're making an awesome, wholesome, inclusive game. And it was really important for us to be as awesome, wholesome and inclusive as possible. And, mm. And that's why we did that, you know, the difficulty features, um, trying not to use too many like jump scares or flashes in the game so that, you know, photosensitive people could get, like get through it without any issue. Yeah. Um, you know, all, all of these things were definitely all, all, all things that, that we considered uh, during development. Fantastic. Yeah. Another thing that we've spoken a bit about today is marketing you know from um helping other studios with their marketing being an indie studio that has has to do it on your own then the partnership with skybound and everything and it's one thing to make a game that exists in a space where everything else is violent and you have this game with a non-binary child and it's completely non-violent uh, it's very colorful has this this kitty aesthetic and you know the things actually taking up the limelight of The Last of Us or, you know, whatever they may be. We know we know yeah. what the industry is like across that spectrum. So tell me about the marketing and your journey through that and how you actually found a way to cut through. I know that a Kickstarter is a fantastic launching pad there, but then how do you keep that momentum going and find that audience and cut through the noise up through, up through launch and beyond? It is a challenge, you know, like admittedly, it's not like we did the perfect marketing scheme and, you know, that, uh, and we ended up like uh, hitting it out of the park. The game is still recouping, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I think in some way we've learned a lot in marketing just um, in terms of working with a partner like Skybound, you realize how deep it could go, like on all of the content that we did, like we did a lot of dev interviews, um, we did a lot of, uh, you know, different types of trailers did one for like an E3 showcase and then, you know, wholesome direct. And you realize like, okay, there's like all of these festivals, all of these events, all of these things that you can always be doing. And so we always tried to, to be present, uh, always tried to be like part of everything that's going on. I think that's the first thing. Yeah. Second thing is being really authentic too. I think, you know, it's not like we're trying to sell a product. It's just, we're trying to reach the people that we think is going to, you know, interest the most. Um, at the end of the day, it is a business, but I mean, it's not like, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to sell a car. It's, it's more like, Hey, this, I think is tailor made for gamers that like this type of experience. You might be this game. Um, one of the things we realized that is really challenging to sell, uh, towards a younger demographic because, um, oftentimes their parents are buying. So I think mm. that's one thing. Well, first of all, you can't target children on, you know, through ads or through, you know, different like uh, marketing endeavors, just legally, you cannot. Uh, and so that makes it a little bit challenging to reach, you know, kids. Um, yeah. And then parents, um, I think one of the mistakes we might have made is uh, having physical copies at launch, because I think parents don't yet understand how to buy a game on the Nintendo store or on Steam or on whatever. And so they saw, like, I got a lot of emails of people who were like, hey, this game looks awesome. I want to buy it for my kid. How do I do it? Yeah. I'm like, well, <laughs> help. Yeah. Here's, here's like the buy now page. And, you know, depending yeah. on what console you have, just select that. And then, you know, it'll bring you to the page directly. You're able to buy it and she'll be able to play it or he'll be able to play it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, 
that, that like that that teaching how to like buy games online is something that I didn't think was a was going to be a big issue and, and mm-hmm. it ended up you know my maybe uh, we didn't optimize our launch in that sense because we're coming out with physical copies now but at, at launch it would have been cool to have them and, and kind of do the the whole snowball effect over there yeah um, but I do think you know that people are tired of having doom and gloom experiences as well mm-hmm. the fact that we were like radically different and you know, there's a, there's a whole movement called Hope Punk movement. Yeah, and, you, you said know, it. You said it before. I've, I've never, never, I've never heard it. Yeah, um, Hope Punk. It, give us the give us the TLDR. Well, I mean, it, it, it was a it's a it's a term that was recently coined. I mean, it's not yeah. like a it, it yeah. We need it, it right ex- now. Right? Yeah, well, I think <laughs> I think it's this. There's so much content out there that's like you know dark and gloomy that you know just being a radically positive today is is a punk move. It's like, it's, it's kind of going against the grain. It's, it's very anti-establishment to do that these days. Um, and you know, we, we, we love that, you know, for us, we, we do feel like, like punks in a way like trying to just make the most wholesome positive game ever while everyone else is, is still like doing the fighting stuff. Um, so I think that, that really put us on, on the map because suddenly you had like this fresh breath of air (laughs) in terms of a game come out where, you could just kind of zone out and not feel stressed uh, yeah. and, and there's enough stress outside and you just put it on and suddenly be transported to this world where you can just be a good person. And and I think that helped a lot of people. Um, yeah, man. I mean, we did a lot of plushies. Uh, we did a lot of <laughs> marketing different secret, things. Yeah, the plushies, yeah, yeah. At, at events we had, uh, we were we gave away a lot of badges and a lot of pins and a lot of all of these different things and, and people loved buying the stuff like mm. the collectibles for the creatures we made a collectibles game and we realized that the collectibles like demographic the, those people yeah. are like they want merch so bad like it's crazy <laughs> uh, yeah it's i <laughs> guess like, like it's one of those things that after you hear that or you have that realization you're like oh of course right yeah, and yeah. it's kind of nuts but like for us it, like it was our first event we had pins and we were like selling pins because we're trying to like fund the event yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is before like we got any funding for the game yeah and uh and they were like yeah here's like 20 bucks like just Let's give me go. all these pins i'm like they're limited edition <laughs> like yeah man i want them <laughs> so, like, cool. uh, and so that that was like something that was really interesting and this is something that was showcased also on the kickstarter and this is one of the reasons why we love doing kickstarters early in development mm-hmm. is there's so many metrics that you can gather from there that can really help you out marketing wise yeah so one of the things that we saw early on is like i think 25 to 30 percent of people bought the the physical pack where you yeah, had the right. physical copy and you had t-shirt poster like and yeah. you know the pins and keychains and all that stuff and then we realized oh okay so we're, we're making a like creature collecting game and i think you know people who like collecting might like collecting merch mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people also are tired of having the the ephemeral di- digital <laughs> digital stuff on yeah online they, I think we're, we're going back to the tactile feel of having a physical copy in your hands and putting the disc in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that also played in our favor. So, so Kickstarter early on in the production, like we did it, it really gave us a lot of insight onto, okay, well, this is how our, our players are acting. And so we should lean into doing merch, even if like we've never done it before. Let's test some things out. Let's try something new. And uh, it ended up working well. Fantastic. And so... What's next for Manavoid? You you mentioned that you've got three IP. Are you are you you know fiddling around with these and seeing what works, or are you actually just gonna follow all three where they lead you on these crazy path like Rainbow Billy? 
Yeah, I think, you know, a bit of both. Uh, the, the team scaled a lot during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're 30 strong now. And What were you, know, you when you started Rainbow Billy? Oh, I think we were, well, we, we started Rainbow Billy where we were three. Yeah, uh, okay, right. You know, yeah. It, it had been like really yeah. early after the reboot of Manavoid. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it was kind of like a, a, in three years, going from three to 30 was was definitely challenges there. But uh, yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, today, we're, we know that we want to keep making games that are close to our core values. We know that we want to keep making games that have some form of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure we're going to keep doing like, you know, child oriented games or like, you know, yep. games that are as kid looking as, uh, as what we did with Rainbow Billy. We're exploring some different uh, genres as well right now. So one of the games mm-hmm. uh, that we're working on is a city builder. Yep. Um, you know, we're working on, on some narrative stuff. Yeah. So, you know, there, there are other projects undisclosed uh, <laughs> that, are, that are going to be coming out. But the through line for Manavoid is always going to be that, you know, there's some form of hope at the end of the tunnel. And, uh, and that's what we want to, people to come out of uh, by playing our games. Well, beautiful, Chris. It sounds like almost everything that you do, whether it be teaching, whether it be the Guild, whether it be Indie Asylum, um, all the games that you and your folks over at Manavoid are making is there is some hope at the end of the tunnel that it is absolutely inspired by that. It is. And, you know, for any dev listening, uh, big or small, there is always hope at the end of the tunnel. I know, <laughs> I know that it gets tough out there. And I know that you're, the people who are going to watch and listen to this are, are all devs that are doing the impossible every day and mm. uh you know making games is uh is coordinating like 20 different types of people working on 20 different types of jobs and this elegant dance and trying to come out of it with something at the end that that is coherent and good and uh you know i applaud anyone who does that so yes there is hope there is always hope and you can always change something in your life and everyone is responsible for their happiness and uh, I think that's an awesome way to close out a podcast. <laughs> I would absolutely agree with you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. And I wish you all the best. Thanks for, for having me. Uh, and again, uh, I loved Armello and a big fan of everything you guys do over at League of Geeks. Thank you so much. Well, we're not working on three things, but working on two new things. So you'll find <laughs> out soon what they are. Good. Thanks, mate. Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.